I want to tell you a story. It's about a man named Pierre Paul Thomas. Pierre Paul Thomas uh, grew up in Montreal, Canada in the 1940s. But he could not play hockey with his friends, and it broke his heart. And the reason he couldn't play hockey with his friends is because Thomas was born blind, long before any cure was available to him. So most of his life, he could only imagine the world. He could only imagine what people were involved in. He could only learn and, and experience it by what people described to him. For years, he walked with a white cane to avoid obstacles in front of him. But, the, but at the age of 66, Thomas fell down the stairs in an apartment building and fractured the bones in his face. He was rushed to the hospital with severe swelling around his eyes. A team of doctors went to work to repair the bones. Months later, he went to be examined by a plastic surgeon for a consultation about repairing his scalp. The surgeon casually asked Thomas, Oh, uh, while we're at it, do you want us to fix your eyes too? Thomas didn't understand, nor did he know how to respond. Not long after that, Thomas had surgery and he could truly see for the first time. Suddenly, his world consisted of bright colors he had never fathomed before. He spoke of being awestruck by flowers blossoming and, and trees blooming. As beautiful as the story of the 60-year-old uh, man was, who was able to see for the first time, there's also this sad reality that goes with it. Because he could have had the same surgery at a much younger age and been able to see much earlier in his life. Thomas had assumed such a possibility was impossible and had resigned himself to be blind. I want you to understand that coming to Jesus should open our eyes. <clears throat> it should open our eyes. It, it provides us a new way of looking at life. It provides us a new way of looking at the circumstances we find ourselves in. But this new vision requires a continual process of refocusing in order to see what God wants us to see. We often think of blindness as the complete inability to see. But the truth is, you can see and still be blind. I want you to look at a slide here with me for just a moment. Here it is on the screen. These are just two of millions of slides out there to, to help diagnose color blindness. As you look at these slides, you actually should be able to see a number in both of these slides. If you cannot see a number in both of these slides, you may have some color blindness issues. So you might want to get that checked out. But anybody know what the number on the left of the slide here is? Five. Anyone know what the number on the right is? 27. Okay, you passed your colorblindness test. You're good to go. You don't have to go to the doctor for that. I want to show you another slide. Here's the next slide. On this slide, the one on the left has two women, an old woman and a young woman, and the one on the left is a vase and two faces. Now, do you see those things? Because it's a matter of perspective. Do you see the two women? Do you see the two faces and the vase? See, our perspective changes how we look at things. The way we, we see things depends on our perspective. The way we see things depends on whether we are blind to some of the truth or not. 
I think we all can agree that it is important how we see the world around us. I think we all can agree that it's important how we see life here and now in this moment. I believe we all would agree that it is important how we see Jesus and what He looks like to us or how we see God's Word and what it means to us. But the question I have to you is are we blinded to some truth or do we see it completely as Jesus wants us to see it? We were in Mark chapter 8, so if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 all morning this morning. In fact, I'm going to look at a lot of Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, it's a perfect time to put your finger right there in that text. Because we're going to read passage after passage right out of Mark chapter 8. But as we start this morning, I want to actually jump right into the middle of Mark chapter 8. Because here in the middle of Mark chapter 8, we find this very unique healing. This unique healing, like none other in the entire Gospels, none other that Jesus has performed. This is unique to them all. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 26, this is what it says. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Now the thing that makes this healing unique is that this is the only healing that Jesus performs that is a, for no better word, a gradual healing. This is the only time where it is a, a gradual healing. Every other time Jesus heals, it is immediate and complete. He's healed other blind people. He's healed people who are lame. He's healed people with demons inside. He's healed people who are uh, leprous. He's healed people and brought them back from the dead. But this is the only time that there is a gradual process. So why, why is this a two-step healing here? I mean, why does Jesus do something different here that he's never done anywhere else? I mean, is it just the fact that in the midst of this healing, Jesus gets distracted for a moment, he loses his mojo, and mid-healing he only gets it halfway done? Or, or is it because uh, uh, the, the guy who's blind, it, it, it's so bad, his blindness is so bad that it, it takes two treatments to, to restore his sight? Or in the midst of Jesus trying to heal this man, does a man jerk away at a crucial point and some of the miraculous power miss him? I mean, none of those things are what happened here. I want you to understand there's more going on in this healing than just the healing of this blind man. In fact, the disciples are there watching, seeing what is going on. And that's a hint as to why this healing is done differently than any other healing 
that Jesus does. Now I want to go back. Before we talk about this a little bit more, I want us to look at the context that we're in. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus feeds another large group. Earlier back in Mark, he fed 5,000 plus families. 5,000 men plus their families. Here we find this large group of 4,000 that he feeds once again. By the way, in the midst of this feeding, he asked the disciples once again, will you get the food for these, these people, you know, provide them a meal. And what do the disciples once again say? Well, how are we going to do that? How's that possible? How are we going to accomplish that, Jesus? But Jesus once again miraculously feeds this large group. But then immediately after feeding this large group, he is confronted once again, he's challenged once again by the Pharisees. And I want you to listen to what they want as we look at this text. Mark 8, 11 through 13. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back in the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. Here they are, and what do these Pharisees want? They want to see something. They want Jesus to show them something mighty, something powerful, something miraculous. Now, I don't know, but it seems to me that surely they have already heard about Jesus' miraculous powers. Surely they have heard him of him providing healings and doing great things. And yet they still are unwilling to open their eyes to who he is. In fact, I believe what they're really asking him to do is I want God to shout down from heaven, Jesus, and tell us who you are. The problem with that is that has already happened. When Jesus was baptized, God shouted down from heaven who he was. And they didn't believe that. So they're not going to believe him now. See, I believe that's the point. Jesus isn't going to give them a sign because no matter what sign he gave them, they're not going to believe it anyway. They're not going to believe it anyway. But notice what they want. They want to see something from Jesus. After this encounter, Jesus in the boat, he starts to warn his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees. But once again, the disciples don't understand what's going on. 15 through 21, this is what it says. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said, why are you arguing about having bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? 12, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet, he asked. Once again, Jesus is flabbergasted at the blindness of his disciples. He says, don't you understand? Can't you see? Are your eyes still blind to what I am able to do? 
Do you not understand what I am talking about? Do you still not grasp what I am telling you? And then in our text, we get to the healing I mentioned. This blind man that took two times to heal him. This, this gradual healing. But after this, we get this sense that the disciples are finally grabbing hold of what Jesus is trying to tell them. Look what it says. They're finally getting some semblance of understanding. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee, went up to villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Finally, you've got to be thinking to yourself, finally, they finally opened their eyes. They're finally getting it. They finally realize who I am. Praise God, their blindness is gone but then it quickly fades because in verse 31 through 33, it says, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter, get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter, the one who understood who Jesus was, goes from hero to zero in just a moment. Peter, the one who had heard from God who Jesus was, now listens to Satan and is a tool of his. All within just a few verses, his blindness comes flooding back into his life. In fact, Jesus identifies Peter's blindness here. He says, you're looking with the wrong perspective, Peter, you got your eyes looking at things from a human point of view instead of God's point of view. So let me ask you once again, why is the healing of the blind man a gradual healing? Why is the healing of the blind man gradual instead of immediate and complete? Well, it appears to me that Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, along with all of us, that spiritual blindness isn't just afflicting his opponents, those who hate him, those who attack him. They're not the only ones who are spiritually blind. What he is trying to tell the disciples and us is that spiritual blindness has a way of jumping right back into your lives and keeping you from seeing the truth that God wants you to see. I think he heals this man gradually as a lesson to the disciples and to us that it is a constant process of understanding, of seeing, of being aware of God's will for your life. Looking at people with the eyes of God, looking at your situation from the, from the heavenly perspective. 
He's called out the disciples twice in this single chapter for not having eyes to see who he is and what he's doing. But to be quite honest, their partial spiritual blindness has been called out many times throughout Mark. All over the Gospels, they're called out, they're called out, they're called out for not seeing who he is. But what about you and me? What about you and me? Would he be calling us out too? Are we spiritually blind? I mean, have we witnessed his greatness in our lives, yet we still can't see all he wants us to be and all that he really is? I mean, have we witnessed who, how great Jesus is, and yet at the exact same time we struggle to see what he wants us to be? And what he wants us to see. And instead of wanting too much from Jesus, do we want too little from Jesus? Do we want a God who is there to keep us safe and secure while all along missing the point that no matter where we are, if we are with God, we are safe and secure? It doesn't matter where you are. If you're with God, that is the most safe place you could possibly be. But have we missed that? Because we look at him with the eyes of the world instead of the eyes he wants us to have? Are we spiritually blind or are our eyes wide open to God's will and God's perspective? See, in our text, we find some people who are spiritually blind. And first of all, they are blinded by their self-assurance. They are blinded by self-assurance. The Pharisees are looking for a miracle, but the truth is, it doesn't matter what miracle they were given. None will do because they have already decided in their hearts that they are right with God and that they know what's best and that Jesus is not that. They've already decided. They already think they know. They've already got all the answers. By the way, there are many who will pull this same claim out. Well, if you will just show me Jesus, if you'll show me God, if you'll prove it to me. But the truth is, no matter what you tell them, they will never be satisfied or convinced because they're self-assured of what they think they already know. By the way, self-assurance always blinds us. When we are assured of ourselves, we are always blinded to the truth. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says it like this. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Now that's pretty plain. If you think you know what you think you know, if you think you're smart enough, if you think you've got it all together, if you think you can handle any situation, be careful because you're about to fall. But I actually like how the message says it a little bit better. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easy as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. I love that. I love how it says it. Cultivate God confidence. The Pharisees missed the point because they thought they knew it all. What about you and me? What about you and me? They were blinded by their self-assurance. There's a second group here, and they're blinded by the good. 
Now, they're really not a group here in the text. They're really a group of people that are referred to in the text. They're not actually playing a part. They're just talked about in the text. And you'll remember who they are when Jesus asks, who do people think I am? They have all sorts of biblical characters in mind. Well, well, he's John, or he's Elijah, or he's a prophet. Now, I want you to understand, all these people recognize there's something different about Jesus. All these people recognize he must come from God. He must be a godly person. He must be doing, or he is doing great things in the name of the Lord, just like all these other people. And in their mind, they're thinking, well, he, he's a good, good guy. But I want you to understand, Jesus is not just a good, good guy. Jesus is God in flesh. He is King of kings. He is Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Savior of the world. He is Lord. The good can blind us to the great. I want you to understand that. There are a lot of good things you can focus on, but sometimes they're keeping you from focusing on what is great. What is perfect, what is beautiful, what is majestic, what is awesome, and that is Jesus. That is Jesus. Don't substitute coming to church for loving Jesus. Those are not the same things. Now, you can love Jesus and come to church. Great. But just because you come doesn't mean you love him. Make sure you love him. Make sure you recognize who he is the greatest of all things who could possibly be in your life. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God elevated him to the highest place, uh, excuse me, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you been blinded? Have we been blinded by, by the good? By, by, by good things, they're not bad things. But have we been blinded by that which was good and forget that which is great? Have we been striving to do that which is good and not striving to be like Jesus? There's one last blinded group here, and they're blinded by selfishness. They're blinded by selfishness. Another one who represents this group kind of gets a bad rap. He's always getting himself in trouble. He steps out and walks on water, but he sinks. He steps out and declares Jesus is Lord, but then what does he do? He turns right around and he says, Jesus, that's not going to happen. You've you got to stop thinking like that. You've you got to stop dwelling on that. You're, you, you're not going to get killed. We're, we're going to be here for you. We're going to save you. Stop talking like that, Jesus. Imagine, imagine that. Peter stands face to face with our Lord and he scolds him. Who does that? Who does that? And Jesus tells him, you're looking at things from a human point of view. You know what you want and you think you know what is best. But the truth is God knows what is best. God knows what is best. Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer and go to the cross and be killed because in Peter's mind, that was destroying the one who he's following. He was selfish. He wanted 
Jesus to be there with him all the time. He wanted Jesus to rule in a worldly kingdom. He wanted Jesus to be there and him to be there with Jesus ruling over the nations. But he had misunderstood and he didn't see things correctly. He was selfish. In James chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him, and he gives grace generously. As the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want you to understand the point that James is making is that we need to stop thinking that we know what is right and we need to just completely submit to God and His Word and His Spirit. And you submit. We need to humble ourselves and submit to the Lord Almighty. Selfishness always gets in the way of God's directing. And selfishness takes so many forms in our lives. Sometimes it's what we want and sometimes we're selfish with what we do not want. I'm selfish and I do not want to have to step out that far with God because I'm safe over here. Or I'm selfish and I do not want to do that because I like what I'm doing right here, right now. And James says, the scripture's not for nothing. Listen to it. The spirit's not for nothing. Allow God's spirit to guide your life. So let me ask you this morning, do you see? I mean, do you really see? Are your eyes open to the truth? Have you understood it? Has it sunk into your life? Has it taken over? Do you understand? Or have you been blinded by self-assurance? Have you been blinded by the good? Have you been blinded by selfishness? Do you really see? Well, Mark 8, 34 through 36 says, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, he must give up, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain? the whole world, but lose your own soul. Do you really see? 